Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is the mailbag edition of the Athletic Baseball Show. Thank you for submitting your questions if you did that. And thanks for listening, even if you didn't submit your qu- submit your questions. Hope your week is off to a great start. Tim McMaster here along with Ken Rosenthal, as we are every Monday. And Ken, uh, we are recording on Sunday. So happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to you, Tim. Happy Father's Day to everyone out there. I hope all the fathers had a good one and a really fun day with their families. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, this, you know what? It's my first Father's Day, Ken, but I'm also enjoying recording this podcast. So I will say that. Well, you'd really rather be with your child, <laughs> but you know, I don't blame uh, you. You were in Boston on Saturday, uh, Cardinals and the Red Sox playing up at Fenway Park. Uh, Boston paying tribute to Albert Pujols. It's an American League team, a National League team. The Red Sox beat Pujols and the Cardinals back in the World Series many, many years ago. It was interesting that the Red Sox chose to do that. But overall, you got to take in a Cardinals team that's really been interesting this season. Absolutely, Tim. And actually, with the Pujols stuff, other teams are going to do that now, I believe. There was some confusion with some clubs early. I believe Tampa Bay didn't do much. Kansas City missed an opportunity with a guy who grew up there. But... It seems to me that now teams are going to figure out, uh, guess what? We all know it's Albert's last year. Maybe we should do something. And the Red Sox always seem to do these kinds of things really well. And that pregame ceremony, being in Fenway, when Ortiz came out, embraced Albert, said some words to him privately, that was a really cool baseball moment. And another cool baseball moment came up when he pinch hit in the eighth inning and People gave him a standing ovation. People at Fenway Park gave him a standing ovation. Why wouldn't you, of course? I get it. But it was still cool to see. And then everyone had their cameras out during the at-bat. And it was a prolonged at-bat. Albert eventually made out, but it went 10 or 11 pitches. So it was a really cool thing to see overall. Now, the Cardinals. This is a team that I was seeing for the second time live this year. And I like where they are. Now, we're recording this Sunday. I have no idea whether they're going to win or lose. And if they lose the game, they lose the series. Okay. But they play in a division that is relatively weak. The Brewers right now are down because they don't have Woodruff. They don't have Peralta. And it's for a small market team or a low-revenue team to lose two starters like that, all-stars, and six pitchers overall on the IL. It's really problematic. The Cardinals have some injury issues too, but... What impresses me so much about them is how year after year after year, they come up with players, mostly homegrown players. And I said this on the broadcast last night, and I'll repeat it here because I think it's worth repeating. Of the current roster, 12 of the players they have, 12 of the 26, were drafted by the Cardinals. Now, I'm counting Pujols because he was drafted by the Cardinals. I know they signed him as a free agent, but my goodness, he's a Cardinal. 
Three other players signed as amateur free agents. So that's 15 of the 26 homegrown. I'm not counting on that list, Yadier Molina, who currently is on the IL. Of course, he was a 2000 draft pick, homegrown. And I'm not counting Adam Wainwright and Juan Yepes, even though both of those guys were acquired as minor leaguers, and Yepes especially is effectively homegrown, and Wainwright you can almost say the same about. So that, to me, is so impressive. And what I didn't say on the broadcast, didn't have time to get into this, is that this is a team that last drafted higher than 19th in the first round. Last time they did that was in 2008. So they haven't drafted higher than 19th since 2008. And all these rebuilding teams drafting up high. I'm looking at the Tigers. I'm looking at the Royals. I'm looking at the Mariners. Some of them drafted higher than others. I get it. The Orioles are another team. They seem to have problems putting it together. The Cardinals spit out two or three players every year. The latest, Brendan Donovan, Andre Pallante. You go right down the list. They just brought up the catcher, Yvonne Herrera, the top prospect. He replaced Molina, who went on the injured list. So hats off to the Cardinals, because for all their fans' complaints on occasion about ownership and even about the trades Mazalok makes and the perceived lack of aggression, they do this right. This is a model franchise for drafting, scouting, and developing. And I'll just give you some examples of guys who were not first-rounders. Now, some of the first-rounders, Nolan Gorman, big 440-foot home run Saturday night. Dylan Carlson, also starting for them in the outfield. Flaherty was a first-rounder. Hudson, Dakota Hudson was a first-rounder. None of these guys were top-10 picks. They haven't had a top-10 pick since 1998. Tommy Edmond, sixth-rounder. Major League leader in baseball reference war right now. Brendan Donovan has come up, made a major impact. Seventh rounder. Andrew Kisner, the catcher, seventh rounder. Andre Pallante, I mentioned him, fourth rounder. Ryan Helsley, fifth rounder. On and on and on. And Tim, once in a while, it's worth taking a deep breath and just saying, wow, this team really knows, seems to know what it's doing. And they do. You don't have to tank. Just let letting some teams out there know you don't have to tank. There are other ways to do it. The Cardinals continuing to be great year after year after year. All right, one more note, Ken, um, from your week, basically, and a team you just mentioned, the Brewers. Uh, they DFA'd Lorenzo Cain on Saturday. I know you got to talk to him earlier in the week. Uh, two-time All-Star, World Series champ, and he uh, looks like is going to be saying goodbye to the game. Yeah, it does look that way, Tim. And if people on Twitter, those of the listeners who are on Twitter, were following along after he got DFA'd, you might have noticed myself and a number of other baseball writers kind of pay tribute to Lorenzo because really he was a favorite and is a favorite for so many of us. And why? Well, one reason is his story, which is incredible. Didn't play organized baseball until 10th grade, showed up the first day, didn't have any equipment. He was kind of a guy who was just a great athlete trying to learn the game and did, was a 17th round pick, not a high pick at all, was never really a top prospect coming up through the minors in the Milwaukee system. But he's a guy who kind of is a self-made player. And of course, he came to Kansas City or went to Kansas City in the big Zach Greinke trade, Zach Greinke and Unieski Betancourt for Kane, Escobar, Alcides Escobar, Jake Odorizzi, and Jeremy Jeffress. That was a trade that helped turn Kansas City around because if you remember, Odorizzi later went for Wade Davis and James Shields in that package. So that is how his career kind of got going. 
He later signed the five-year, $80 million free agent contract with the Brewers and just had, from every perspective, a wonderful baseball career. Now, why were we all, as writers, so effusive in our praise for him? Because of the kind of guy he is. He's just one of your favorites. When you talk to him, you guys can see in his interviews, he's very honest and open and raw and a really smart player, a really smart guy, and someone who was part of one of my all-time favorite plays, 2015, Game 6 of the ALCS. Kane on first, Hosmer doubles into the right field corner. Bautista throws to second instead of hitting the cutoff man. The Royals, with their third base coach, Mike Jershley, knew he was going to do that. They had scouted him. They had seen he was going to do that. And Lorenzo Kane came running around third base, and he was a house of fire. He <laughs> scored. They win. And, of course went on to great things. So, yeah, Lorenzo, just a favorite of all of ours, Tim. And it was just really cool Wednesday night to interview him one more time on FS1 after that game. That was the night that Council set the record, the Brewers' record, for all-time wins by a manager. And Lorenzo had a couple of hits in the game, so we chose to interview him. (laughs) And he was so funny. At the end, he knew where he was. Listen, he did not have a good year. His statistics were awful. He knew it. He knew he was at the end. He talked to Andy McCullough of The Athletic about that, said, listen, I I get it. This is probably it for me. And he's tired. He doesn't really want to play anymore from what I can see. So before I interviewed him, Brewers are coming off the field. They're celebrating the win. Council, of course, is now the all-time leader for the franchise and managerial victories. And Kane is shouting to his teammates, guys, Ken wants to interview me. It's like the first time in three years. And, of course, it was a great interview, and I always love talking to Lorenzo, and will I'm sure, continue to talk to Lorenzo at various points. But it's worth paying tribute to that guy. He was a fun one to watch, fun one to cover, just a joy all around. And those Royals played a style of baseball that we'd, we'd love to see more of these days. It's kind of gone away, all that base running and speed and, and the way they did it in that ballpark. Uh, so congratulations on a great career, Lorenzo Kane, And that'll bring us to the mailbag. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. 
If you want to get involved next week, you can do it. It's really easy. We have no voicemails this week. So next week, get us some voicemails. We did get a couple that I'm saving for down the road because they were kind of evergreen. But get us the voicemails. You can also email us at tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Ken, the trade deadline is coming. It's late this year, August 2nd, because it falls on a weekend. uh, But we're starting to get those questions in. This one from Ryan. He says, with the trade deadline less than two months away, I could not help but think about the Mets and their plans for this. Many, if not all, would agree that the Mets could use relief pitching, starting pitching, and even a bat from the right side. With that said, what players have the Mets been linked to and what players can you see them going after? Well, it's a little early to think about names or to talk about names. Now, we can speculate all we want, but if you're asking which players have they been linked to, I don't really know that we're that far along yet. Remember, it's June 19th as of this recording they've got a six and a half game lead doesn't mean they won't try to improve they're going to try to improve but it's still a little bit early for trade talk now you're right they could look for a starter depending on where Scherzer DeGrom and their other starters are come the deadline and they certainly could use in my estimation and probably their own an eighth inning reliever a quality setup guy in front of Diaz now Trevor May could be that guy once he returns Lugo used to be that guy, but really isn't that effective or at least effective to that level this year. Still a decent reliever, don't get me wrong. There was some talk internally with the Mets, some of their staffers, about maybe Tyler McGill moving to the bullpen if they get enough back in the rotation, which of course could happen. I don't know, given what's going on with McGill physically, if that's going to be possible now, but at least at that time it was an intriguing idea. But I expect... They're going to go after a quality setup, man. That would be, I think, number one for them. Now, you mentioned a right-handed bat. I sort of see it not quite that way. To me, they need a left-handed bat. And frankly, I think they need more power. I don't know where you put it. They're pretty much set at every position. You could say catcher, but they're really high on McCann still, and they're missing him right now. And they've been very open about that. We miss McCann. We miss what he brings behind the plate. So Wilson Contreras, sure, you can put him in the outfield. You can catch him. You can DH him. He makes a ton of sense. I just don't know if they're going to be willing to pay that kind of price. And rather than a right-handed hitter, I would like to see them get a left-handed bat for the bench, kind of an upgrade over what Dom Smith and Nick Plummer have been for them. That's kind of a hole on the roster. We're nitpicking, admittedly, but The one thing that kind of concerns me about them, and maybe I'm looking at this in too much of a new school way, because they're not a three true outcomes team, is their lack of power. And when I say lack of power, they're fine in slugging percentage and all of that, mostly because Alonso has been so dominant. But who do they have that really scares you from a powers perspective outside of Alonso? Marte, maybe, but he hasn't really been that guy this year. So I would like to see the left-handed bat. They've got Nemo from the left side. They've got McNeil from the left side. Lindor, Escobar, switch hitters. Listen, they're really good. We're nitpicking. I'll repeat that. But that would be, if they have an offensive need, the thing that I kind of would like to see them address. i like to see a left-handed bat with power. That would be kind of the final piece, in my estimation, outside of that eighth-inning setup guy. 
All right, one more question related to the trade deadline, but not a specific team or players. Victoria says, I was just wondering if player vaccination status has any effect on the trade market. If a player isn't vaccinated, does that have any drawbacks to them being traded to another team? Or at this point, does it not really matter anymore? I just know as a Reds fan, there are a few players who aren't vaccinated who might be valuable on the trade market and didn't know if that could affect them being moved. Victoria, good question. I don't expect that's going to be a factor. Now, if you're an AL East team trading for a player who is unvaccinated and you know you're going to Toronto, say, six to nine more times, well, it wouldn't be nine probably after August 2nd, but six times, you might think twice about it. It's certainly a factor, assuming the rules in Canada stay what they are right now, which is that unvaccinated players cannot play in Canada. Now, an aside to this, I wrote a 3,000-word notes column earlier this week, and at the end of the column, I referred to the advantage the Jays have this year because when teams come in, some of them are losing two and three players because they're unvaccinated, so the Jays don't have that issue. And several Jays bloggers and fans responded to me. This was at the bottom of 3,000 words, but hey, you got to have every word straight. (laughs) They were objecting to the idea that the Blue Jays had an advantage because they said, hey, the Jays can't acquire those guys, which is true. They cannot, and they could not last off season. My point was, series to series, the Jays are who they are now. The other teams have to deal with this. So they have had a bit of an advantage. They had an extreme disadvantage last year when they had three separate homes. So I wanted to clarify that. I was talking series to series. Yes, the Jays have a disadvantage in acquiring players. They can't get unvaccinated players, at least at the moment. Uh, and that's all I'll say about that. Uh, I mean, you should also tip your cap to those people because they read the 3,000 words, right? They went all the way down the bottom. It always amazes me, though, Tim, how something that I would not foresee <laughs> would become an issue. It's a and nerve. Yep. I under- yeah, it's a nerve. And I understand it, and I understood their point. Their point was perfectly valid. I, and I didn't make it clear. I was talking about going series to series. That's where the advantage comes in. But... Yes, the Jays have been at a disadvantage in terms of roster construction because of that as well. All right, next question comes from Mike. He says, an interesting thing I'm noticing, especially with the Yankees, a team I watch closely, is the willingness to steal bases. I don't know if stolen bases are up and will be by the end of the season, but it seems like teams are more aggressive on the base paths right now. Considering the success rate needed to pass a high threshold, are teams just more confident in the factors of successfully stealing bases, or has the data on stolen bases changed? One of my favorite exciting baseball moments was the Royals in 2014 and 2015, a team we just mentioned a little bit ago, the championship years, and their ability to steal at will in those games. Would love to see those stolen bases tending, trending back into the games. These are really good points. And let's start with the Yankees because that's the team you specifically asked about. They are, as of Sunday, going into Sunday's play, 39 of 49 in stolen base attempts. And that is an increase from last year. Last year, they stole 63 for the entire season. So 39 this season through Saturday's play, 63 this season. Difference happens to be perhaps coming from two relatively new players. One is new, Isaiah Kainer-Falefa, 10 stolen bases. He leads the Yankees. And Anthony Rizzo, who was only on the team for part of the season last year, he has six stolen bases, tied for second on the team with Aaron Hicks, again, going into Sunday's play. As far as stolen bases being up league-wide, very perceptive. They are up. And I went and checked this. I couldn't get it exactly lined up 
to the same number of games. I'm not that good at math. And I might even have blown the whole thing from a mathematical perspective. But I do think I have it right. The way I determined it, through roughly the same number of games compared to last year, stolen bases are up by about 100. And stolen base attempts are up by about eh, 120 or so. So the rate is, in both seasons, over 75%, which is the threshold that teams use. They want 75%. Success rates, otherwise they consider the stolen base not worth it. Both years, 2021 and 22, 75%, slightly above that. So when I say stolen bases are up over 100 from last year at this time, that's approximately three per team. It's not a dramatic thing necessarily, but it's definitely an increase. And I do expect that over time this is going to continue. Now, I think the increase might be partly attributable to at least the early part of the season when the ball wasn't flying out of the ballpark and teams were perhaps looking for other ways to score. But keep in mind, too, baseball continues to experiment in the minor leagues with ideas that will help enhance the possibility of stolen bases in the future, the larger bases being used at every level this year. Jason Stark has written a lot about this, and also teams in the minor leagues are limited to two pickoff attempts or step-offs per plate appearance. Otherwise, if you exceed that, it's a balk. So those two factors could lead to an increase in stolen bases in the minors. They're testing this out. Could bring that to the majors, and then you'd have perhaps even more action. So yes, stolen bases are up. They're up for the Yankees, and they are up overall. The league leader in stolen bases, major league leader, Texas Rangers, 57 out of 73 entering Sunday's play. All right, let's keep it going, baseball. Uh, Next question is from Robert. He says, hey, Tim and Ken, big fan of the show. Ken, I was hoping to hear what your thoughts and insights are on the amazing secession drama within the Angelos family owners of the Orioles. Also, can you share with us whether there are legitimate concerns the Orioles could relocate to Nashville or another city, like some accusation state that John Angelos is attempting? Thanks, and keep up the great work. Well, the lawsuit from John Angelos' brother, Lewis, actually states that John wants to move the team to Nashville, which considered it. I don't remember the exact language. John Angelos came out with a statement repeating what he has said often on this subject. As long as Fort McHenry is standing, Fort McHenry, of course, stands over the Inner Harbor. As long as it's standing over the Inner Harbor, the Orioles will stay in Baltimore. Now, I don't believe he's being insincere with that message. I do believe the Angelos family wants to keep the team in Baltimore. And more to the point, there are local buyers that will line up to buy that team once it is up for sale. And keep in mind too, Camden Yards is a jewel of the sport. Major League Baseball wants a team in Baltimore. Now Baltimore, there are all kinds of problems with the franchise, with the city. There are issues. There's no question about that. But once this resolves, and it's only going to resolve after Peter Angelos passes, that's when the team will be sold, then I fully, 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 can't say this enough, fully expect the team is going to remain in Baltimore. Peter Angelos is 92. He has not been well in recent years. And that leads to this little lawsuit that was filed by Louis Angelos against his brother and his mother about two weeks ago. Georgia Angelos being the mom, John Angelos being the brother. And it does reek of succession. It's kind of the baseball version of succession. It's the sons who are not the father, trying to fight over control of the team. As an alumni of the Baltimore Sun, I have quite a bit of experience with 
that family. They bought the team while I was still at the paper. I was a columnist at the time. And early on, there was a story in, I believe, Baseball America, in which D'Angelo's sons, Lewis and John, talked about how they played rotisserie baseball, the precursor of fantasy leagues, and that they gave their father advice kind of based on what they learned in rotisserie. I don't know if I have this exactly right. I have it approximately right. As a columnist for the Baltimore Sun, I frequently had fun calling the Suns, as I said in one column in August 1994, that they were rotisserie league mavens. And I would throw in lines like this once in a while to the point where I will now admit this. The Baltimore Sun editors asked me to stop. And they asked me to stop because apparently the mom, Georgia, was getting upset that the boys were getting made fun of. They didn't own the team. At that point, they weren't involved with the team, really. And the son said, please stop. And I said, okay, that's fair. And actually, they were my bosses. So it was an, un an unreasonable request. So I remember these guys. Put it this way. And John Angelos, as the lawsuit says, has gone in and out of favor with his father over the years. It's not in dispute. And Lewis has always been kind of around, too. And I don't know how this resolves. I don't know who is right and who is wrong. I do know it's an unfortunate set of events. Really unfortunate. Because this family has done a lot for the city of Baltimore. Regardless of what you might think of Peter Angelos as owner of the Orioles, and certainly have said plenty over the years, as Orioles fans know. But he is a great Baltimorean. He has been an amazing person in the state of Maryland. He's had an incredible impact in so many different ways. And frankly, if he wasn't so ill right now, I do not believe this would be happening. And he would have control and the boys would not be doing this. So how it resolves, I don't know. But eventually, this is what matters most. This team is going to be sold. And it's going to be sold to, I believe, strong local buyers, local owners. And hopefully at that point, the Orioles can really start to revive because as much as this rebuilding plan seems to be slowly getting better, we're starting to see some of the kids now and some of them are impressive. They've got a long way to go. They've got to spend money at some point. And I don't know that that's going to happen under the Angelos family at this point. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, next one goes uh, from Adam. Do people not in Canada realize how good of a year Santiago Espinal is having? I would have to think he should at least be in the conversation for a gold glove. I agree with that. He is having an excellent season defensively. I looked at defensive run save going into Sunday's play. He's tied for fifth among second basemen. Actually, Jimenez is ahead of him from the Guardians, and Jimenez plays second and short. Trevor Story's ahead of him. So is Gleyber Torres. But Espinal has had a wonderful season defensively. He's a really good player. Batting, entering Sunday, 283 with a 764 OPS. His OPS plus is 18% above league average. He is everything you would want for a guy who's costing the Blue Jays 718000 while the player he replaced, Marcus Semien, is in Texas with a $175 million contract getting outperformed by... Santiago Espinal. Interesting story about Espinal as well. He is the guy that the Blue Jays acquired from the Red Sox, I believe it was in 2018, for Steve Pierce. And Steve Pierce, of course, went on to be World Series MVP for the Red Sox. Now, the Jays clearly are getting a good return out of that trade as well. Next question comes from Andrew. He's a Brewers fan. He says, the Brewers had to put Omar Narvaez on the COVID IL right before game time and called up Alex Hall from High A Appleton, which is about an hour away from Milwaukee, instead of playing with one catcher. The next day, they brought up Alex Jackson from Nashville since there was enough time to get him to Milwaukee, and they DFA'd Hall. My question revolves around the contract for Hall. Does this now start as MLB clock for team control? Along with that, are there any other occurrences that you can think of where this has happened? Well, Andrew, I don't recall this happening, though I am sure it has. Nothing jumps out at me. I'm, I will guarantee you it's happening. I'm sure it's happened this year. The way this would work for Alex Hall, he gets one day of service. That one day he was up. Yes, his clock starts with one day. <laughs> one day. And after that, as you mentioned, he was DFA'd. Then he cleared waivers and was outrighted. So I don't know that it really hurts him long-term at all. It's it's one day. It's not going to affect him as a Super 2 guy. I, I mean, he cleared waivers. He's not someone who was terribly coveted, obviously. So that's the answer. And teams do things all the time along these lines. And it would not surprise me if it's happened with someone else. I'm sure people listening out there who root for certain teams can probably remember similar circumstances with their own clubs. It is why more and more teams get their higher level minor league teams closer and closer to the big league team. We see teams slowly doing that around baseball. And this is one reason. So you don't have to go to low A to pull up an emergency catcher. Uh, All right. Last question is from Bill. He says, growing up, I remember the outcry in 1987 when Andre Dawson won the MVP award for a sixth place Cubs team. The Angels are losing again, so it seems like another year of non-playoffs, yet Mike Trout has four MVPs for a team that is a perennial loser. I understand he has the best war every year, but does that make him the most valuable? Shouldn't the award be changed 
to the most outstanding player because with or without him, the Angels are still losers. Call me old-fashioned, but I think winning should count in assessing value. And as a Red Sox fan, I still don't see how he beat out Mookie in 2016. (laughs) Okay, this is a debate that usually rages in September, but let's get to it now. And I happen to agree that all things being equal, I want my MVP to be on a contending team. That's my preference. It always has been. I've written it. I believe there is a difference in the pressure such a player is under when playing in pennant race games as compared to a team that is out of it and not playing for the same stakes. Now, you can say, well, it's maybe even tougher for those players who are out of contention because they've got to bring it every day with not much on the line. I get that, but I still stand that I believe all things being equal, again, that I'd rather have the guy from the contending team. Now, Trout has been an exception because he is so far superior in many of his seasons to his competition. Now, I want to read the criteria because it's always worth going over this again. The rules of the voting remain the same as they were written on the first ballot in 1931. This is what is sent to the BBWAA members who vote on MVP each year. So here are the criteria. Actual value of a player to his team, that is, strength of offense and defense. Two, number of games played. Three, general character, disposition, loyalty, and effort. You can take that however you want. Four, former winners are eligible. And five, members of the committee may vote for more than one member of a team. The instructions also state, the MVP need not come from a division winner or other playoff qualifier. So if you're taking those instructions literally, and voters actually should, then certainly you can vote for whoever you want and not feel badly about it from the contending, non-contending perspective. I said my piece. I said why I prefer the player from a contender. But at the same time, I don't have my votes in front of me. I haven't voted for MVP every year. I do know I have voted for Mr. Trout on occasion when he has been eligible and when he's been on non-contenders. So... It really goes to the quality of the player, how much he stands out over the competition if he does. All things being equal, again, if we've got a guy, let's do it by war. We've got a five-win five player on one team and a 4.9-win player on the other team and the 4.9 guy is on a contender and the 5.0 guy is not, I'll probably go with the 4.9 guy. And granted, that's just one element of the voting. It's not based on war. I sure don't base it on war, but that's what I'm kind of thinking along those lines when I look at these things. I always prefer the contending guy. Makes sense. I would say, I will say in Trout's defense, and you don't really, we don't really have to defend Trout as one of the greatest (laughs) players of all times, but some of those years, it wasn't particularly close. I mean, he was so good as a ball player that you just couldn't, couldn't ignore him. That's right. And you know what? There's no shame in that. My goodness, this guy is at a level that we will probably never see again. He's a once-in-a-generation player, and he should not be penalized because he plays for the Angels, right? That's, that's kind of the gist of the argument. All right, if you want to get involved with the show next week, please give us a call, 646-543-7072. You can also email 
That address, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Next up on the feed, another good one coming up in Starkville on Tuesday. The Braves streak is over. It ended at 14, but Jeff Francoeur is going to join Jason and Doug. That should be a lot of fun. The Roundtable Wednesdays, Grant Brisby, Andy McCullough, Mark Carrig. Thursdays, it's Derek Van Riper, Eno Saris, and Bridge Giroli. Then DVR is back again on Friday with Keith Law. And if you love DVR and Eno, and who doesn't love talk, listen to those guys talk baseball, you can catch Rates and Barrels also. They're other podcast which is more fantasy driven that is one of the best fantasy podcasts out there so check that one out as well you can subscribe to the athletic right now one dollar a month for up to six months get all the great writing baseball basketball football every sport soccer if you're a premier league fan we have it all so join that go to the athletic.com slash baseball show ken have a great week tim you too thank you very much i hope everybody out there has a great week as well we will talk to you next monday